This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your stop for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Hello. I'm going to introduce you like that every time, just so you know, in that kind of little sing-song, Monica Castillo. It's the only time you're going to speak Spanish, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is uh, episode number 20 of Cinema Fix. If you're new to the show, basically, this is the show on Film Geek Radio focused on in-depth discussion of mainstream blockbuster films. We are here to satisfy your addiction to quality conversation about the movies. And each week we release an episode in two parts. The first part is a 10 minute long spoiler free review of uh, whatever film we're discussing that week. That way you can get an idea of what we thought about it and whether or not it's worth your time. The second part, which you're listening to right now, is a much more in-depth analytical discussion that does contain spoilers. So if you've seen the film and would appreciate a more in-depth conversation about what works and what doesn't, definitely listen to to, to this one. However, I will say that we just recorded uh, part one, and even though we didn't really give spoilers about End of Watch, we did briefly talk about two other movies that came out this weekend, Trouble with the Curve and Dread 3D. So if you're interested in our thoughts on those films, you can uh, check out part one of this episode, or uh, you can find my reviews at filmgeekradio.com. This week, the movie we're talking about is End of Watch. Monica, why don't you give our listeners a little information about End of Watch? Who directed it? Who's in it? What is it about? It's directed and written by David Ayer. It is a cop drama movie starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena. Also starring, uh, co-starring uh, Anna Kendrick. It's a really, really minor role, unfortunately. But uh, Pena and Gyllenhaal are, you know, two two buddy cops in uh, one of the toughest parts of L.A. And they deal with a lot of issues, drug cartels, human trafficking. It's a really dark cop drama, um, very bloody and violent. It is rated R for good reason. And so the whole twist on the end of watch uh, thing that sets it apart from other cop dramas is that it's filmed in a non-traditional way, meaning it's done with found footage, mostly sometimes, maybe not. It's supposed to be a found footage cop movie, but whether or not it actually is, is up for debate. So it starts off found footage with uh, uh, the little police recording on the dashboard, catching them uh, shoot down a criminal. And then it goes into handheld camera and then lapel camera. And then it goes into professionally shot camera and like wide shots and all sorts of, you know, more fancy, you know, we took time to set this set up. So it kind of goes all over the place where originally it set it up like, now this is going to be just like, you know, low grade cameras and you know this is this is in their hands and we're catching all the action first person and they didn't stick to it so like does the thought count i don't know and you kind of took me out of the movie (laughs) yeah i I didn't no no full credit there on my end uh here's a clip we rolled up here i don't know what's going on it's the second cowboy like this we run into in a week watch out for these guys they operate by a different set of rules no, I'm just a ghetto street cop, but you gotta give me something here. We've got indicators he's a runner for the Sinaloa cartel. 
Yeah, well, we ran it. It came up clean, dude. You guys don't have the proper clearance for any of this information, but I'm going to throw you a bone. Cartels are operating here. We're on it. Be careful. What does that mean, though? It means you and your homeboy need to power down. You just tugged on the tail of the snake. It's going to turn around and bite you back. I'm throwing you a bone here. I'm gonna, I'm Be grateful turn. for what I'm giving you. I just I'm giving turn. you a warning. Lay low. All right, yeah. Can I get your name for my log? Negative. Move along. <laughs> yeah, all right. Here's the thing. You know you have a problem when if, if there are scenes in your movie that could be cut without making any impact on the film whatsoever. Yeah. There are a handful of scenes in this movie in which it suddenly will cut and show what the what the what the bad guys are doing, so to speak, what the drug yeah. dealers and these human traffickers are up to, what these two gangs in particular are doing. And they're filming either with handheld cameras or iPhone cameras, and that's how they're keeping it in line. But most of the bad guys, they are filmed on the on the first person camera sort of deal. Sort of, but it's not it's not really clear at times. Like it's implied at times that someone is filming them with an iPhone or with a handheld camera, but there's like no reason given as to why they would be allowing someone to film them. Especially when they're having these pretty you know, in-depth conversations about what their plans are and all the illegal stuff that they're going to do. And then other times, it's it's pretty obvious that there's no one in the gang actually filming them. It, it, it's just a cameraman from End yeah. of Watch shooting yeah. them. And if you're a found footage movie, I feel like most of the time you need to stick with your main characters. Any time the film cuts to these quote-unquote villains, I guess you could call them, Mm-hmm. The movie just stops dead in its tracks. It just loses all of its momentum. And those scenes could be completely cut out of the film. And it would not make an impact on the story or the narrative. In fact, it would probably make it a better movie. Yeah. Because I also felt it was a tad long, actually. Yeah. To, in order to be like a found footage film, they're usually really quick and dirty. And this one was just kind of dragging along miserably for a while there. Because it does, it does get dark and there's... After a while, the little comedy side talks and stuff are just not enough. Right. And then on top of it, when you have them constantly cutting to, to, to other people for no good reason, you know, that's five to ten minutes that could have been cut right there. Yes. Every time. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that there's a whole bunch of dark stuff in the movie. There's there's not really an arc or a plot, so to speak. <laughs> Um, it's kind of you kind just, of need those, don't you? <laughs> sort of. I mean, it, and on the one hand, it's kind of interesting because it, it's it really is almost like a documentary, like a few months in the life of these two cops. Yeah, but the, you know that's why documentaries sometimes don't always work. Well, right, but it, but it's just kind of following them th- uh, through this period of time in their careers, and it's showing several uh, major busts that mm-hmm. they that they make. And I feel like one of the main reasons they did include all of that stuff with the with the bat with the with the two gangs and they did keep cutting away is because they did need an arc of some sort. And so the the arc they, they needed conflict. Right. If you if you can even call it, you know, an arc is is that these two gangs are eventually going to decide to to kill these two cops. But that doesn't happen until the very end and honestly there's no need to uh, show those gang members for that plot line to still make sense and for yeah. it to still be pretty intense. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's really unnecessary. And let me, let me ask you this. 
did you think the film was trying to make a statement about the police, either a positive or, or negative statement about the police? Um, I didn't get that sense, really, of them trying to make the statement, because they made him like, they were just your normal, you know, 20-somethings. One was married, uh, Michael Pena's character was married and was about to have his first kid, and Jake Gyllenhaal's character was, you know, you see the progression of, you know, him dating and then him getting married. So it's kind of just more like, hey, they're people like us, you know, they have you know, families, it's not, it's not like a very, I didn't think it was a very, an overtly positive portrait because they do, they kind of do act like, you know, they don't respect their authority figures or whatever. And they're kind of clowning around and they do, you know, they talk about just guy things or whatnot. And, but they, they're still part of a team. So I don't think that this was like, I, I guess my only problem with the portrayal would have been probably at the beginning when they do shoot down a criminal and then you see them, you know, they get, very much like rewarded i guess verbally it's still like frowned upon by the superiors it's like you know you're not supposed to really shoot the guy but other people are just like yeah you know way to go guys you know obviously i'm not privy to those kind of things but it's not the way it's supposed to be i i feel like the feelings that i have about the characters at the end of the film are very different from how i felt about them at the very beginning and I'm not sure if that was intentional or if that's just because the, the, the script is kind of a mess and it, and maybe it doesn't really have an attitude, a consistent attitude towards them. Because as you mentioned, that opening scene is them basically just shooting down this guy. Yeah. The, the, these guys that open fire on them, they, then they kind of like fist pump and they're kind of like proud of it. And yeah, it's bragging rights. Right, and I wasn't sure, like, okay, is is the implication here that they're a little bit corrupt or, you know, that maybe, obviously, they're a bit hot-headed? Um, I think that's to show mostly that they're hot-headed and they just don't respect the position of power that they're in. But because the reason why you feel differently towards them at the end of the movie is obviously because they it's so much more personally focused. Like, you're finding out about, you know, each of their backstory and, you know, when he when Michael Pena's son is born, you know, you get to see that moment and, you know, all the in-jokes between him and Jake Gyllenhaal, Jake Gyllenhaal getting married, you know, you get to see the personal lives that you wouldn't otherwise see. See, I, I, I don't I don't even think it's that. I, I didn't, I honestly wasn't. I mean, it definitely humanizes them more than just the monster, you know, at first, if that was the, if that was the only pace that the movie kept, that is just like, just the police board dash and you just get to see all the busts that they do and all the roughhousing. And at one point, they even beat up a guy because the guy, like, challenges them to a fight. Like, that's totally, like, off the rule book sort of deal. But if that was the only way that you saw them, I think our opinions of them would have been way much more negative than if we took the cameras into their own personal lives and see the fact that they're not just, you know, knuckleheads or whatever. Well, you know, I wasn't really as uh, invested in their personal lives as I could have been. I felt like that stuff was pretty formulaic and pretty cliche. Oh, totally. Um, Yeah, but it's there for that reason. I was more invested in and what struck me was how, you know, as you mentioned, for the first half or so, they're presented as pretty hot-headed and, you know, they fist fight that guy, and you don't really have a very positive view of what they're doing as police officers and how they're approaching the job. But then gradually, as they do all these different busts, 
the situations they find themselves in suddenly become so much darker and so much grimmer. And the things they find are so horrific at times. And the situations that they're placed in are so dangerous that you do really end up thinking, oh my god, I can't believe someone would do this for a living. Yeah. Thank God we have cops out there on the streets, you know, willing to to protect us and go through all of this (laughs) to keep the streets safe. And so I felt like just the severity of the situations that they found themselves in that did actually did paint them in a very heroic positive light oh yeah and then particularly at the end when uh you know one of the characters dies and it's all very emotional and there's a funeral scene and it, it, i felt like overall it was presenting a very it, it was presenting police as a very uh positive and noble force in society which mm-hmm. is fine, but that contrasts with what we were shown at the very beginning. And again, I feel like if, if, if you open up your film with found footage and you open up your film showing us, uh, these two cops acting in a manner that isn't the greatest, mm-hmm. you need to, you need to stick with that. You need to see that through and you can't just leave that behind. I got, I understand that point. So you would rather, Instead of like, I guess the the character arc of them maturing and or they don't really mature, so it's right. It's more than just just like their actions are condoned. Then right, you know, is it condoning everything that they do because it's it's like yes, they're cops. They put up with all of this horrific stuff that we just don't understand. So yeah. if they occasionally go off the rails, it's okay. Yeah their license to it i i i don't know the film doesn't really have a consistent point of view no it, it really doesn't like it it lacks a lot of cinematic just voice <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's the main problem is that i felt like i feel like even though the the what happens in the film is pretty interesting most of the time there's not a consistent vision you know propelling it all forward I mean, here here's the thing. Like, we're definitely gonna forget about this film in a couple months. Like, come Oscar oh, sure. season and such. Yeah, like this is this did not stick in my mind at all as a film. Like, it was gonna be important. So I'm still surprised that it's getting as positive reviews as it is. Right. I mean, I I I honestly think that the found footage genre is one of the more interesting subgenres out there. Uh, that's pushing it. Oh, at least for me. <laughs> well, I actually I quite like it. And I think there's a lot of potential. It's strained. I think we're really got, starting to like scrape the bottom here in terms of what we can do with it. Have we really I mean, I'm welcome to see something that someone that, that does something different with it, but right now we just keep mining it. And just putting different stories in front of it. And it's like, it's not changing the tone. It's just looking like sloppy filmmaking. I think that there are enough positive examples out there that, I, you know, I feel like that there's actually still a lot of potential for it. And I think there's some interesting things that you can do with found footage if you do it well and if you follow yeah. all the rules. The problem is End of Watch is an example of a film that doesn't follow the rules and mm-hmm. it just doesn't work. You know, I would use this as an example of how not to do found footage. <laughs> I know in part one you mentioned you you had some strong feelings about the depiction of race Woo, in the film. Yes. Why, don't, why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about that? Yes. Every single person that gets arrested 
or confronted by the police are people of color. Everyone that gets led out and cuffs are people of color. And when I was exiting the theater, I'd made this comment to another critic friend of mine. And he actually was like, yeah, I know. My, my people don't do anything wrong at all, according to the movies. And it really, like, really, in all of L.A., not one one white guy deals drugs. Like, not one gets pulled over for speeding. <laughs> I, I do think there's some interesting racial stuff going on. But I actually didn't have much of a problem with that. Just because it's kind of implied that they're in South Central L.A., and mm-hmm. they're given this one neighborhood to patrol, basically, mm-hmm. this this one district. So it didn't seem too unbelievable to me that they could just be patrolling an area that is heavily pop- populated by blacks and Hispanics. And that could also be another reason why the two main gangs that we see in the film mm-hmm. are black and Hispanic gangs. Yes. It could just be that a- area of the city. So I wasn't as bothered by that. What I did find interesting is the ending of the film mm-hmm. in which uh, it's implied that Jake Gyllenhaal's character has been shot and he's dead, mm-hmm. basically. And then Michael Pena is crying. And it's a very dramatic scene. And then Michael Pena gets shot. Yes. But obviously they can't end the film on that note because that would be too much of a downer. So someone has to live. And who is it? It's the white guy. It's always the white guy. It's always the white guy. And his uh, Mexican buddy took the bullet for him. Yeah. Essentially. And, you know, that his body. He's he's the noble. He's a noble savage. Like, are you serious? Like, I'm so tired of seeing the same trope. Like, I mean, here's ah. the thing. I, I, (laughs) I, I, I like it from a writing perspective just because there are several scenes leading up to that where you get the impression they're they're kind of leading up to to um to to a scene in which perhaps Jake Gyllenhaal will actually die because there is a scene in which you know Michael Peña tells him hey man if anything ever happens to you I'll take care of your family mm-hmm. and everything will be okay yeah. and then the script switches it so actually Michael Peña is the one that dies i think that's in that's an interesting uh reversal I just kind of wished it had been the other way around. <laughs> Why can't uh, Jake Gyllenhaal tell Michael Pena, hey, if anything happens to me, I'll take care of your, of your family. And then why can't he be the one that dies? Yeah. You know? So the the moment that just came to me was like, this, this is going to be a little far back, but like Cowboys and Aliens, where it's uh, the guy who was like, like a son to Harrison Ford's character. And he's the one that gets killed. In the end, like ba- in one of the end battle scenes or so against the aliens, and it's like the same thing. It was like he was the one that was like, okay, uh, he's becoming like a surrogate son to him or so because Harrison Ford's son becomes such a disappointment. But instead, Harrison Ford gets his Paul Dano son back. Right. <laughs> this is just like there. Wow, they're... cowboys and aliens. I, I actually, I you know, I could have been happy never thinking about that film again. But uh, thank you for bringing it up. Oh, I will bring up that zombie just to beat it back into the ground. Oh, because man. It's such a was, disappointment. It was. <laughs> oh, man. That movie is so forgettable. <laughs> Except that it's not. <laughs> yeah, this, you know, the, the sad thing is that that. Can you believe that movie just came out a year ago? It seems like ages and ages ago, but it was, it was just I know. a year ago. It, it was just this past summer. Yeah. Well, not this past summer, but the summer before. Many moons ago. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Well, well, yeah, getting back to end of watch, I felt like the ending was the the main element in which I was uh, drawn to that subject of race and how that was being depicted. Was there a positive portrayal of an african-american at all even in well, the in the, okay. in the cops uh, even i'll even go for the cops because at least you know michael pena's character you know he's he's the mexican brother that was doing good and that you know he was he was telling people in spanish what they needed to do for the cops and stuff like that and like interacting with people whatever but like actual another african-american cop in the force other than like maybe a guy three rows back behind the two characters. Okay. I think there is a bit of a positive character in the form of that one drug dealer that he fights. um, Awesome. He's a drug dealer. (laughs) Well, yes, he's a drug dealer. He's a drug dealer. But it's kind of implied in a sense that maybe there is honor among thieves to a certain extent, you know. And he, you know, he respects the police and they respect him enough to kind of let him off the hook. Um, after they kick his ass, <laughs> essentially. And so there is kind of, I mean, there is a certain degree of mutual respect. And then in exchange, he does, uh, you know, tell them that they have a hit out on them and he does try to, to warn them. So, you know, yes, he is a drug dealer, but he's portrayed as a somewhat honorable human being. After he gets the shit kicked out of him by Michael Pena. Yes. Okay, yes. just just trying to you know <laughs> score that one up. Right after the one after one minority beats up another minority. Yes. Yeah, for the entertainment of the white dudes on the camera. Awesome. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I have no. I'm sorry. I did not leave this movie feeling good at all. <laughs> yeah, but again, I I in, feel in like addition I, to the I, fact that you know it was shot like crap, and then you know this and. Not enough Anna Kendrick to make me feel good about it. Sorry. Right. But again, <laughs> I don't necessarily feel like a movie needs to go out of its way to be incredibly diverse and no, to kind of, I, I don't think it needs to shoe in a positive minority character just because. Um, and most of the time I feel like, you know, it, it handled the race thing okay. You know, if they're patrolling a, Uh, majority-minority district, Mm -hmm. that's fine. You know, and again, the focus is just on the two of them, the white guy and the Mexican partner. Yeah. So if we don't really get to know an African-American cop on the force, that's fine. I would feel like there's an African-American cop, though. If, like, you know, if he's doing L.A., really, I think there's a bit more diversity there than just mostly white with a few Hispanics on the team. I think there was, like, one guy, like, third row back or something. Maybe he has a line, you know, sort of deal. But definitely not a major player, even though we interact with a lot of other cops as well inside the force. There are a few others. There are a few others, yeah. But again, they're mostly white. They're they're white or Hispanic. Or Hispanic. Let me ask you, speaking of the other cops, what Mm -hmm. did you think of that one female police officer... I I can't remember her name, but she's basically portrayed as incompetent. And later, she's nearly beaten to death. So her thing is that she was a newbie. And then that's why she got assigned the older cop or whatever, because he was going to, you know, break her in. They they talk, you know, crap about her or whatnot. And then later on, when, 
you know, serious stuff goes down, that older cop gets a knife through the eye, and he's kind of, like, sidelined, and then, yeah, she is beaten and nearly raped. I thought that went farther than it needed to. Movie's pretty already violent as it is, obviously. I don't you know, know. I, I, I didn't mind the fact that she was nearly beaten to death. I was not sure what to make of how the film depicts the reaction from the other cops. This older cop gets knifed in the eye, yeah. but he's still able to speak coherently and he stays calm and he's overall very professional. So yeah. again, I feel like they're they're kind of depicting police as this sort of strong, noble force, you know, that are cool under pressure, even when they have a knife in the face. Yeah. But then you have this character of, of, of the new girl who can't do anything right. And then after she's nearly killed, the police are chatting about it. And, and one of them says, you know, well, she just wasn't cut out for the job. And we shouldn't really feel sorry for her. It's her own fault for being incompetent, basically. Yeah. And I wasn't sure if the film was trying to, if the film was agreeing with that idea that, you know, maybe only special people can be policemen. You know, it takes a certain type of person to do this job. And if you're not that kind of person, then you deserve what you get, basically. And I, I'm not sure if the film was agreeing with that or just kind of portraying it to, to undermine that idea. The gist that I got was mostly like what she did was like newbie's error or whatever. It's like if they split up and then, the you know, one gets hit and then the other one, they go after the other one. Well, it's her fault because, you know, you split up, you're not supposed to split. Because there's other competent women on the force. I mean, they are they are cold, and they are not exactly sympathetic when she turned in her badge, you know, but neither are the guys. So I don't know if this is just like, oh, you know, they expected her to just bounce back and be okay with the brutality that she just met. Could just be more of like, oh, she just chickened out. Well, you know, I think one of the most, one of the more insensitive cops is uh, a female cop played by Cody Horn who some of our listeners may uh, recognize as the love interest from Magic Mike. Yes. She, you know, is is the one basically saying this this officer she just wasn't good at her job and it it, she, it there's it's not just that they think she was right to give up her badge, it's that they there was this attitude in the scene of of you know, they they were completely unsympathetic to the fact that she was nearly killed. In, in, in other cop dramas, you know, the fact that one cop got knifed in the eye and another cop was nearly beaten to death, that would be like a rallying cry almost. Yeah. And it would be like, oh, hell no, you 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 mess with us, we're going to bite back. But yeah. in this film, it's almost, it, it's, 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 it's like they don't seem to really care at all. It's like, well, she was incompetent, so. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. I guess it depends on... The group, you know, because they're they're pretty, you know, at least in the even in the beginning, they're depicted as like, okay, Pena's with Jillian Hall, and um, I think it's Cody Horn, right? She's with, right. Uh, yeah, she's with, I think it's Marika Ferreira, and um, you know, this so and so is with so and so, and then that person's with that person, and then they they split off into their cop cars. It's not really so much of a close community. Like, there's tweet using in between the two of them, but it's not like. I don't know. I didn't get this sort of camaraderie like you were just talking about. I didn't get that sense before, during, or after at any point. So it doesn't surprise me. 
and actually their their action kind of went in with that. It was just like, wow, she, you know, just turned in her badge like that. Jeez, you know. Right. But again, there is there are a few scenes in which we do get some noble speeches about how once you're a cop, you know, we're family now. Yeah. We're all brothers and sisters. Uh, oh, Anna Kendrick, you're marrying a cop. So now you're part of this larger family. Um, but yeah. as you mentioned, but really the family is only in only, only between the cop car, the cop unit. <laughs> right. And but as you mentioned, the bonds between the police officers don't really seem that strong. So I'm wondering, was the film trying to critique that idea and kind of show the contradictions that there are when it comes to to, to law enforcement? You know, it, it it might be promoted as one big brotherhood, but actually it's not. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that might be that was giving an this intentional... Movie- you think I'm giving it too much credit? Okay. Oh, I think you're giving it too much credit. I really don't think they probably even thought that far ahead. Okay. Well, <laughs> that was, you know, I, I like to give the film. We're lucky that they we're lucky that they set up the cameras where they did. <laughs> I mean, I always like to give the, the filmmakers the benefit of the doubt and say, well, maybe they yeah. were trying for this, you know, fancy schmancy, high-minded critique. Uh, and it just didn't work out, but Maybe again, maybe yeah. they weren't, and it's just messy. Yeah, no. Maybe if they wanted to go for a critique, maybe they'll show like, yeah, we're family, and then it's utter, you know, BS throughout the whole, you know, squad or whatever. But right. you know, there's still some. There's that little sense of family in between the the two partners, but then after that, it really just it doesn't feel like it. Like were any of the other? I'm thinking I saw in Jake Gyllenhaal's mar- um, wedding scene. There's a bunch of Marines. So that's where he was before. But then, like, actual cops. Were there more cops there? I think so. But you don't really know who they are or, you know, if they really care about each other the way they say they care Yeah, about like, I'm thinking, like, other. their sergeant wasn't there or whatever. Um, the other two girls that we see, um, they're not really there. The other two partners before, they're not really there. Maybe they're just random extras or whatever, but I... It doesn't stand out to me because it's mostly, you know, I think there's one scene that it's one character talking to. Oh, actually, you know what the captain might be or the sorry, I don't know the proper name, but their superior was <laughs> was talking to a bunch of Marines and saying something along the lines of, you know, they understand a sense of camaraderie or whatnot. I, I'm glad you brought up the captain because that was a, an interesting character. You know, they they, they bring in the captain at the beginning to give them a little talk. And then mm-hmm. he shows up later to check out the stash of guns that they, uh, that they bust basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he doesn't show up again. And I was kind of like, was he supposed to be a recurring character? Why have him pop up multiple times? He does show up to yell at them because he had a camera on the crime scene or whatever. And he's screwing things up. But uh, you know, when, when he comes to check out the guns, I was thinking in the back of my mind, oh, is he actually corrupt or something? Why is he here checking this out, looking at the uh-huh. evidence? Uh, is there something going on with their superior that they're going to discover? And mm-hmm. nope, he just decided to stop by. They just decided yep. to have a, another scene uh, with the golden guns, and he just was going to come check them out. So was that scene necessary? Uh, not really. No, (laughs) so much of the movie is like, oh, we can do without. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Nothing to see here. You know, okay, I I feel like 
we're we're really tearing this movie apart. Uh, before we wrap things up, I do need to say again, there are scenes that work by themselves. In fact, I'd say most of the movie works <laughs> with the scenes by themselves. It just does not connect. <laughs> yeah. They're good YouTube clips. They're not good together. <laughs> yes. There are lots of really cool parts that do not add up into a cohesive whole. Uh, and Gyllenhaal and Pena, I think, really are terrific. And they're extremely natural in front of the camera. Their dynamic feels very realistic. It's a shame they weren't in a film that was better constructed. Because they re they really do do a fantastic job, I think. So, before we uh, wrap up, can you name any other positive elements about this film? You know, we got, let's give it credit for, for something, at least. I really like Michael Pena's performance. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I watched him more than I watched Jake Gyllenhaal. All right. So it sounds like we're both agreeing that the performances are the, the, the strongest part of the film. And if you're going to see it, you should see it for that. Yes. All right. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say about uh, End of Watch before we uh, wrap up? I'd like to never think about End of Watch. I'll put it in the same place where cowboys and aliens are. I'll bring it out just in case, in case of emergency. I, I would not say it's as bad as Cowboys and Aliens. No, because that was a severe disappointment, but this one is just like, this. well, like you said, it's a how not to do found footage, and I just know we're in store for so much more found footage. This is just not going to be well done, so I'll just keep bringing this one out for that reason. As I mentioned, you know, there are good things about End of Watch that just don't come together. I don't think there are any good things about Cowboys and, and Aliens, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's fair. All right. Well, I think that'll wrap it up for uh, this episode on End of Watch. Don't forget to tune in next week when we'll be discussing Looper. Monica, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about Looper and what they can expect next week? All anyone any anyone needs to know about this film, uh, Looper, um, is that it involves time travel, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Bruce Willis, and really cool stuff. You heard it here, folks. Looper has really cool stuff, so be sure to tune in next week when we talk about it. All right, well, we'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at www.filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. So if you like this episode, please write us a review. That would really help get the word out about the show. Uh, you can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate it. That helps offset uh, all, uh, our costs for running the network, and it helps us uh, keep developing new content for your listening pleasure. So we really appreciate your help. Monica, I'm so glad that you're going to be joining me on Cinema Fix on a weekly basis. Where can people find you online? People can find me on Twitter at M-C-A-S-T-I Movies. That's M-Casty Movies. And that's where usually I'll retweet and repost all of my articles and Tumblr posts and pictures and things like that. So it's just easy to stalk me there. Now, I know you're really embedded into the Boston film scene and the film critic scene. Are you writing for any outlets or are you involved in any film festivals or anything in Boston that we should be aware of? <laughs> Am I involved in Boston? Um, yes. So we have the Boston Online Film Critics Association. I do write for the website. Um, we uh, occasionally post about retrospectives, 
uh, in the area and interviews for upcoming films. Um, I just put an interview up with the two directors of um, Chicken with Palms, so the people who did Persopolis. So that's up there. You can find us at Bofka. That's B-O-F-C-A dot com. Um, I also write for Dig Boston and uh, do a lot of local film articles uh, there. And I write mainstream movie re- uh, film capsules for the Boston Phoenix. So you're all over. I am. I am really all over the place. <laughs> I'm busy, girl. <laughs> all right. I'm Andrew Johnson. Uh, you can find my writing at filmgeekradio.com. Look there for my reviews of Dread 3D, Trouble with the Curve, and... Uh, uh, several articles from the Toronto International Film Festival. You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know that you're a listener of the show, and I will definitely follow you back. All right, I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun this week getting high on cinema. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!